Hey, two things that concern me greatly as a pastor. The first concern is that folks who come to CCC for an extended period of time may not be genuine Christians. That really concerns me. They might believe because they see themselves as moral, they're good to their neighbors, they've joined the right denomination, whatever that is. Uh, They occasionally volunteer to help out the community. And, of course, they are Republicans. They know the essence of what it means to be a Christian. You also know that I use sarcasm, all right, if you are visiting. Matthew 7 would apply to them when it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. People within the religious realm, surface relationship to Christianity being workers of lawlessness. 2 Corinthians 3.15 also encourages people to to test themselves to see if they are of the faith. Now, I don't think the Apostle Paul who wrote that was wanting us to point to one another and say, uh, he's in, uh, she isn't, uh, she's in, he isn't. That wasn't the issue. But it was for each of us to look in our own hearts, evaluate ourselves. I mean, it's a sobering thought, is it not, that people can can come to our worship services, experience our small groups, participate in all these outreaches, and never having come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. I say this not to create unnecessary doubt with genuine believers, but to warn those who are not genuine and are afraid to take a real hard look at themselves that they have relied on surface evaluations instead of their real status of their heart before God. Listen, when there is no desire to fellowship with God on a personal basis, when there is no evidence of love, joy, and peace, when there's animosity towards God and the people of God, you better check under the hood. What is interesting about this, I think, is how faulty our own detections are for who is a genuine believer. I mean, we're good at giving judgments of other people and condemning them and saying, well, you know, maybe because of some moral flaw, we say, well, he couldn't be a Christian because he does this, or she couldn't be a Christian because she does that. I wonder if we were to evaluate the 12 disciples, not knowing all their history, or not knowing, I should say, the results of how their lives ended up, but knowing some of their history, if we were to pick the one that we would say would be a likely candidate for not being a Christian, who would you pick? I would submit that Peter would be an obvious choice. Would he not? I mean, that's probably who most people would look at. I mean, he was brash, self-confident, prone to violence, And yet, Christ told them, 
that one of them was going to defect, that he was going to reveal the true state of his darkened heart, and they turn to each other and say, is it me? Is it you? We don't know who it is. They had no idea that it was Judas. Uh, it was said of Judas in Luke 22.3 that Satan entered into him. He's called a betrayer and traitor. And in John 6.70, Jesus said that one of you, speaking of the 12, one of you is a devil. But the disciples still had no clue who he was speaking about. Now, Judas knew what he was doing. Judas knew that he had plans to betray. His heart was darkened. And what this kind of scenario should tell us is that we could very easily skim the surface of Christianity and have people within our midst that do this and go undetected, unconverted with darkened hearts. And the best outcome that I could lay out for you is that you face the reality of your sin before God, that you rely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. So one of my concerns is that people can be among us and not be a genuine follower of Christ. That's a reality. There's a second concern I have as your pastor, that people are generally converted, but they have never taken the claims of discipleship seriously. They see a relationship with God as merely an addendum to their life, but not an essential element I mean, their narrative, if they were to tell their story, would go something like this. Uh, I'm from Missouri. Uh, I was in the Air Force. I'm an American. I'm very patriotic. I'm I'm a good person. I have a good job. I'm a parent. I'm married. I like the royals. I go to church, and I'm a Christian. And all that goes together in the same pot. No real sense of priority. We're just all of those things. And then Jesus comes along and he ruins the party. And he says this. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves mother or father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The point is, is that Jesus is not an addendum. He is our life. He is our first priority above all. He is picking what is most precious to us, family. And he says, do not make an idol of these things. Because you see what could happen. And what was happening even in the first century, and has continued to happen ever since Christ set foot on the earth, is that people hate God, they hate Christianity, they could be family members, they are calling you out, and you have a choice. Am I going to follow Christ, or am I going to just, you know, fall in with my family? He's not saying ditch your family. He's saying in those conflicts, you're to always choose Christ. Your number one priority, listen, is not your patriotism to your country. It's not your job. It is not even to your spouse or to your kids. Being a follower of Christ means 
that he is our king and we are subjects in his kingdom. But there's more to all this than just allegiance to Christ. If I were to come and ask you, what is the essence of being a Christian? What is it you'd say? What is it you'd say? Attending church regularly? Loving your neighbor? Doing good, serving your community? Being a moral person, following a a particular political path? Not drinking, not smoking. It all really depends on what church you go to that that makes these kinds of lists, right? Let me submit to you that none of those are the answer. (laughs) If I could say one thing that was the essence, it'd be in one word, abiding. Abiding in Christ. If anything could sum up what it means to be a Christian, it would be that. Turn with me to John 15. John 15, take your Bibles. We're going to be using this passage as a jumping off point to consider this topic of living in the vine, abiding in Christ. The reason that this is relevant is that this passage has been used to address the two issues that I have already explained. Some say it answers the question of what happens to the posers of Christianity. Others say that it answers what happens to those who are genuine Christians but don't take Christ seriously. Let's all stand as we look at this passage. We'll read it. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Father, this is what we pray, that our joy may be full that we indeed would not only learn what it means to abide in you, but that we can be participants in this abiding and that we can experience all of these things that are promised here in this passage. We know it can only be so because your spirit is working in our hearts and we realize the provision that we have in Christ. And so I pray for those here today that maybe don't know you, that today would be their day of salvation, and for those who have not taken discipleship seriously, that they would begin abiding in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said in agreement, amen. You may be seated. Let's first make some observations about this passage before we dig in. Jesus is talking to his disciples on Thursday Before his crucifixion. John 15, Jesus mentions abiding 
or abide ten times. He speaks of fruit six times. He teaches that only those who abide in him can be fruitful. As a result of abiding, there is much fruit. In fact, there is a progression of no fruit, fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And Jesus obviously prefers that we all experience much fruit. Remember, the audience is the disciples. And this is just before the worst weekend of their life. And Christ is conveying promise. He's conveying encouragement. He's conveying admonition before this difficult time. Notice in verse 2, he calls all of the branches his branches. Verse 3, he tells them they are already clean. I'll explain next week why this means they are recipients of salvation. The point is, is that some of his branches abide and some don't. Some bear fruit, some bear much fruit, some don't bear fruit for a season. The message seems to be for believers to abide and bear much fruit. And though this passage seems to be directed to believers, it doesn't mean that posers who claim to know Christ are not an issue. Posers are a problem, but I would suggest and I believe that that is not the subject of this particular passage. This passage is about about fruitfulness. And the problem for unbelievers is unbelief, not fruitfulness. I also don't think that this passage says that Christians will lose their salvation when it says that the branches are burned up in verse 6. Such an outlook would seem to deny the numerous promises that are made to believers just in this book of John alone, but also in other New Testament passages. It would seem indeed an odd message that Jesus would give to his closest disciples during this time that we're coming for them to watch out about losing their salvation. That's an odd message to give to try to encourage them. It's kind of like saying, okay, now, one last thing, guys. Don't screw up because if you do, God is going to burn you forever in the pit of hell. Okay, now let's eat and enjoy the Last Supper. That would be an odd message to give. One last thing. What does it mean to abide? The word literally means to remain or stay, has the idea of of to continue in a certain state, to continue in a certain condition or activity. Now, the first thing we need to realize is that anything that has been given to us by God's grace such as abiding. It's not sourced in ourselves. But I would suggest it does take effort to welcome and walk in these provisions that God gives us. And what this passage seems to convey are three main areas of abiding. Now, we will, we will develop this in later messages, but I just want to throw this out to you because I, I don't want you to be frustrated by seeing the word abide and not having any idea what it might mean. Three things I I want us to consider for abiding. It means dependence, perseverance, and love. Dependence, perseverance, and love. Three things that we participate in in order to abide. So let's dig in. Verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. 
Jesus uses the illustration of things that are familiar to the disciples, like a vineyard, to make his point, to make a spiritual point. This was a a common thing that he did when he related the parables or, uh, or spiritual truths. And he says that God the Father is the vine dresser, or the one who oversees the vineyard and participates in the process of fruit bearing. So in God's field, there are certain ways that fruit is produced. And we would do well to take note then of how that's going to be here as we uh, look at the rest of the passage. Then he says that Jesus is the true vine. In other words, Jesus is the unique and sole source of spiritual life that produces fruit. So if our goal is fruit, Jesus is our ticket. There is no fruit without abiding in Christ. There is no production or fruit without operating in the power of Christ in us. We read in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Notice that every branch that is being talked about is in Christ. We are the branches, and we are supposed to produce fruit as we feed off the vine. That begs the question, what does he mean by fruit? What does this fruit look like as we abide in Christ? Let me just throw out some possibilities as we follow that word along in the New Testament, and I'm just going to give you a few to consider. First, there is Galatians 5, 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We could say this, that fruit is godly character. Fruit is godly character. Then we look at Ephesians 5, 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Fruit is an outward demonstration of righteousness. That will be seen in every Christian who abides in Christ. Some behavioral change, an outward demonstration of righteousness. And then we read this in Hebrews 13, 15. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Fruit of walking with God or abiding in Christ is going to be a life of continual worship and praise. It's just going to flow out of the person who abides in Jesus. We see another one. When commending the Philippians for their generosity, Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So another fruit is generosity. Now again, these are all byproducts of depending or abiding in Christ. You cannot help but have your character changed, your worship overflow, your generosity increase as we live in the vine. Our passage says in verse 2, that the branches that do not bear fruit, he takes away. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, this same Greek word is actually, uh, actually translated elsewhere to lift up, to lift up. Now, for help on what this might mean, I want us to read from a journal article 
by G.W. Derrickson on viticulture. Now, viticulture is the science and study of grapes. Just throw that word around to your friends tonight or tomorrow. You'll sound really smart. This is what Dickerson says. He said it would be better to see Jesus indicating what actually occurred during the spring, time when this was written. Namely, certain non-fruiting branches were tied to the trellises along with the fruiting branches while the side shoots of the fruiting branches were being cleaned up. The non-fruiting branches were allowed to grow with full vigor and without the removal of any side growth or leaves. Since the more extensive their growth, the greater the diameter of their stem where it connected to the vine, giving greater ability to produce more fruit in the following season. Removing the non-fruiting branches from the ground, placing them on the trellises, would allow the rows of plants to benefit from unhindered aeration, considered an essential element to proper fruit development. What a great insight. What I want us to see is how the fruitless branch is lifted or taken up from its position and put in a place where growth can happen. The glorious truth is that God's first step for a Christian is not to throw them out. Rather, he lifts them, takes them away from their fruitlessness, and puts them in an environment where growth and maturity can take place. You say, well, how does he do this? I don't know. He's God, but I could guess that he does this through encouragement uh, from other people, or he may use trials to get our attention. He may use whatever means are at his disposal to lift us up, to put us on that trellis so that we can better experience fruitfulness. And then he says, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. The vine cannot produce the fruit of which it is capable without drastic pruning. That's Jesus' point here. How does God prune us then so that we can bear more fruit? Well, you could turn to maybe Hebrews 12 that talks about the discipline of God, that when we kind of get off course, you know, God will discipline his children. That could be a possibility of this. But I'd suggest that trials and hardships that come in our life are not always because of sin in our life or God is trying to correct us. There are other reasons for trials and hardships. Consider James 1, verses 2 through 4. It says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is some of the fruit. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There's a wonderful promise here that if we respond with humility during trials, God is going to produce fruit that includes steadfastness. We might say honing off the rough edges. Listen, never fall prey to the thinking that the closer you get to God, the less pain you will experience in this life. That is deception. That will get you in trouble. Never think the closer you get to God, 
the less trouble we're going to get. Listen, joy is not the absence of pain. It is the ability to see pain from God's perspective. James is not advocating that we get into some Christian robotic mode and deny pain and force a plastic smile on our faces. He says we are to count it all joy. The word means here for count, uh, it's translated elsewhere, to think or govern. The, the govern. The idea is that we are to choose a certain perspective. Let's face it, in the unguarded moments, do you find yourself disappointed or even disgusted with God? It's hard when we're in the middle of it. I had a person after the first service tell me, I remember when I was battling cancer, I had a day where I was just like, count it all joy, I wasn't feeling it. Listen, forming our opinion about God can often be based on false assumptions. I mean, have you ever misread a friend or a situation and only to find out later that you really missed the mark? Couldn't it be possible that we also do the same in reading our circumstances and making a presumption about God in the midst of trials? I'd suggest we do it all the time. God has communicated to us clearly what his motive is in our testing. In college, I broke my hand while I was playing softball, diving for a ball. And when I was in the emergency room, the doctor told me, this is going to hurt, and he had to pull on the finger that I broke to set it, to get it right so that it would heal. I would suggest that God uses trials to pull and set our perspective on the right things for maximum spiritual health. My dear friends, we serve a God who shows great mercy to us, who, let's say that we're the people who are not bearing fruit, or let's say we're a person who just needs to bear more fruit. God puts in our situation, puts in our path things that will not only get our attention, but set our hearts right to abide in him so we can bear much fruit and experience maximum joy. He loves us too much to let us think these wrong thoughts, to keep going down a path for our own destruction without bearing fruit. And if you keep hitting your head up against the wall and you think life is not turning out the way I want, could it be that your perspective needs to change to count it joy? Not that we're sadomasochists and say, bring on the cancer, God, I love it. No, but we say, even in the midst of this, in this painful situation, it is hard, yes, but I count it all joy because I know that God is there with me. He loves me. He's going to sustain me. He's going to teach me, and I will make it with him. And it's in the midst of those trials that God sustains us and that we can experience this, this inward, deep joy that you're like, I don't understand this. That's what the Bible says. It surpasses understanding. I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel this right now because normally I'm discombobulated. I'm, you know, taking a fit. But God is giving you joy in that moment because you are setting your sights on the rock of your salvation. Let's pray.